Hey, have you got bare walls at home or in your office? Do you want to surround yourself with the majesty and inspiration of our mountains? I'm talking truly incredible photography of Western North Carolina landscapes. RedRockPhotoNC.com. Stay tuned for details. It's the Pete Callender Show. With more than 20 years as a reporter and radio host in North Carolina, Pete Callender is helping solve the world's problems one podcast at a time. Because he's a giver. And now, here's Pete. What's going on? Welcome to the show. It is Tuesday, July 14th. Thank you very much for joining me. Thanks for listening. Uh, on the program today, we've got Asheville City Council weighing reparations. Thomas Soule addresses systemic racism. And we're going to talk with Jason Whitlock from Outkick.com about the NFL, the Black Lives Matter movement, as well as Cam Newton and the Panthers. Just a little bit. Just a little bit. Uh, first, I want to thank some of the people who make the program possible. Folks like, for example, Andy and JK and Richard and Stephen, Kim, Catherine, Deborah, Manuel, Nick, Grant. I appreciate all of the support. I couldn't do it without you. Also, Mattress Man. Here's something I couldn't do without Mattress Man. Sleep on a bed. Because I... I well, I bought my bed from them. And so if... If not for them, I wouldn't have a bed. I would be sleeping on the floor um, because they're the only place you should get your next bed from. If you are thinking about using maybe your Trump check, your Donald dollars for uh, a new mattress, then go to Mattress Man. Go shop online at mattressmanstores.com and you can see all of the products that they offer. So many different types of mattresses. They have adjustable bases. They have tons of deals on all sorts of product lines, including the Biltmore Collection. The Biltmore Collection is, these are, I mean, they're high-end mattresses. These are the mattresses at the, uh, the Biltmore Inn and Hotel. Okay, they are made in Fayetteville. And they're made uh, by Restonic. This is the Biltmore Mattress line. Also, they have Nature's Spa. This is a brand new line of mattresses by Paramount Sleep. And these are the mattresses that are featured at Blackberry Farm in Tennessee. So you can bring some of that luxury to your home as well. But they have tons of other mattresses, adjustable bases, as I mentioned. Uh, the technology on the bases is something else. You can loop them in on smartphone technology. It's pretty wild. So uh, go check them out, mattressmanstores.com, or go on into any of their four locations in Western North Carolina, Asheville, Arden, Hendersonville, and let the sleep consultants help you find the right bed for you. You can also uh, have them ship it nationwide if you are not local. If you are, they do five-star delivery service with a 120-day comfort guarantee for everyone, okay? Experience the difference at Mattress Man. Buy local and sleep better. Joining me now is Jason Whitlock. He is a compelling and insightful sports writer, TV personality. He's a radio host, a podcaster, and he's the newest member of the OutKick family. OutKick.com is the website, formerly OutKick, the coverage. Uh, Andy joins me now. Welcome to the show, sir. I really appreciate you making time for me. And you've got a number of articles up, uh, blog posts, uh, writings at uh, OutKick.com. Talking about the Black Lives Matter, the NFL uh, sort of uh, interaction here, and you started one of your pieces, and I'd forgotten this, about Jason Witten and wanting to place the arm-in-arm -arm stickers on the back of the helmets after uh, some Dallas police officers were killed. Um, we've come a long way from the days when the NFL <laughs> said no to that, you said. So... Um, is the NFL just taking advantage of sort of the zeitgeist, the moment right now, or has this represented in your mind a fundamental shift? 
I don't know if taking advantage is how I would describe it. I think the NFL and a lot of corporations are being bullied into going along with the Black Lives Matter movement. And out of fear, I think there's just a lot of executives at corporations and Roger Goodell at the NFL. They don't want to be smeared as racist via social media. And social media, particularly Twitter, is the home ground and home court of the Black Lives Matter movement. And if you don't get on board, uh, particularly as a white executive, you're going to be smeared as racist. If you're black and you don't get on board, you're, you're going to be smeared as a sellout and anti-black. Uh, but I just think the NFL, like a lot of corporations, is just falling under the pressure and out of the fear of being smeared as bigoted. In some of your writings, there's a, a, a tone or uh, that comes through. I'm not sure you're aware of it. Um, you, you don't seem to be a big fan of Twitter. Did I get that right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think you got that 100% accurate. Look, I, I think I would compare Twitter, uh, how I feel about Twitter, to how I feel about McDonald's. I have a love-hate relationship with it. <laughs> I, I love McDonald's. I love fast food. It's not good for me. It's not healthy. It doesn't improve things for me. And look, there are some people, and again, you know, fast food's a weakness for me, and it and it damages me, keeps me overweight. But there are some people that can eat fast food, and they're in perfectly good health. And so I, I think I'm someone who can in, interact over Twitter and not be damaged by it, not be changed as a journalist by it. But that's not the case for the overwhelming majority of people in the media. Twitter's had a very corrosive effect on media. It's made us lock in on anecdote-driven narratives rather than actual research, data, evidence. Uh, you know, And so it's promoted an anecdote-driven worldview. And you can find an anecdote to justify virtually any belief you want. I could go through Twitter and find someone that says, hey, man, Jason Whitlock's the sexiest man in America. Doesn't make it true. <laughs> so, you know, it's a nice little anecdote. You know, I've, I've dated a woman or two that thought I was the sexiest <laughs> man in America, but it's not factual. So it, could Colin Kaepernick... You spend a lot of time uh, talking about him, and uh, after, especially after his tweet about uh, using the video of uh, Frederick Douglass's comments and such. And you, you uh, well, let me ask you this way: Could he happen without Twitter? No, no, he, he, no, he could not exist without Twitter, just because there's just no substance to Colin Kaepernick. He he doesn't say anything. And so if there's no Twitter for him to retweet or for Nessa to tweet out things for him, Nessa being his girlfriend, mm -hmm. uh, he produces no content to back up his alleged beliefs. And I just think in a world without Twitter, uh, where in a, in a world 25 years ago when you had to earn a voice in in public discourse you you had you weren't just granted that right or that privilege 
by the fact I got a laptop or a smartphone, I get to now uh, have an outsized voice in public discourse. People used to have to earn that through intellect, through the producing of journalism, through research, things like that. Now no one has to earn it. All you got to do is, you know, string together some tweets and hook it up to some algorithm that's controlled by people in Silicon Valley. And you get to turn Colin Kaepernick into the modern day Muhammad Ali. And as I love to call Kaepernick, mute Muhammad Ali. <laughs> Muhammad Ali was known as the Louisville Lip. He, he mm -hmm. never backed away from a conversation defending his opinions. Colin Kaepernick does none of that. But in 2020, we can see him as a modern day Muhammad Ali. It's a joke. It, I got to say, though, you kind of hurt my feelings a little bit when you said without Twitter, Kaepernick would be a flash in the pan, long forgotten quarterback, not much different than Stan Humphreys, Jake Delhomme, Kerry Collins and Neil O'Donnell. Why do you got to name two Panthers in that list? What's up? Why would you do that? <laughs> They're guys that appeared in the Super Bowl, didn't win. And other than me referencing in a column, they've long been forgotten. Oh, Jake Delhomme was great. Come on. Not so much Kerry Collins. I, I give like you that one. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. um, that was quite the season. Anyway, so um, I thought you made a really great point in this piece, though. You said, does racism and unfairness exist in America? Yes, it exists everywhere. Um, but the founding fathers created a system based on principles that would allow the nation to evolve faster than others. Um, and I, I have not heard anybody sort of speak to this point. And then you did an, uh, another post on this entire concept of uh, societal evolution. Yeah, I, I think what's going on in America and how we're reevaluating our history and demonizing and canceling people from our history is a joke. Look, slavery was a worldwide uh, global pandemic. Every race, every ethnicity has been a slave and has owned slaves. And during the 17 and 1800s, slavery was commonplace throughout the world. America recovered fastest and evolved away from it faster than the overwhelming majority of the rest of society because of the principles laid out in the Declaration of Independence and in our U.S. Constitution, it's why America is a worldwide leader when it comes to progress, racial progress and all other kinds of progress, because the founding fathers and Thomas Jefferson and George Washington, if you go really study history, they understood that America was going to have to move beyond slavery. It was just how do you do it? If you try to end it at the start of America, America never exists. You spark a world, uh, a civil war instantly if we try to do this in 1776. And so in order to preserve the country, and again, are these guys perfect? Hell no. Do they own slaves? Hell yes. I get it, but they put the tools in place for America to evolve beyond slavery and towards emancipation, and you got to tip their hats to them. It, it was the right thing to do. Uh, now, would the absolute right thing to do, I guess, been to immediately go to war 
and have a civil war and, and you know, ha- have that 80 years uh, in advance of when it eventually took place. Yeah, I guess that's easy for people to say, but some people are pragmatists and some people were trying to think uh, in, in their minds, big picture. How do we preserve this country? How do we get this country started while also addressing the problem of slavery? I tip my hats to them for for putting a plan in place. You said it also slavery does not remotely define your identity. Um, and I thought that was pretty important uh, as well. So what's the answer? How, how do you what do you say to people who who do fall into that camp? It's just a mistake. How can something that you never participated in be central to your identity? I mean, I, can it be part of your identity? Yes. Are, are there are there ramifications from slavery that uh, are still ongoing? Yes. But is it the central part of your identity? I think we as black people are making a mistake holding on to that. Again, listen, I, I'm just telling everybody's at some point was a slave or an enslaver. Everybody. Not everybody holds on to that identity as a slave 150 years, 170 years after its abolition. So I, I just think I've tried to explain through my columns, like, what, 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 what do I build my identity around? Being a Christian, uh, being an American, uh, being raised by great parents, uh, you know, there are other things to build your identity around other than I'm a slave. And if I hear the word noose, it reminds me of slavery and blah, blah, blah. I just it's just inappropriate. If you're constantly looking in the rearview mirror, it's hard to move forward. Yeah, it's got to be exhausting too. I can't imagine, you know, just living, every, looking for every, <laughs> for every opportunity to 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 feel like that. Um, feel slighted. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Um, and so I, all right. So now I almost feel like I've forgotten to, how to how to even talk about sports, given the plague and all. Um, well, we haven't had any. So. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> and I think that's part of our problem as a society right now. Um, so let me ask you, you because you are, I'm, I'm assuming, you're a fan of Cam Newton. You you like Cam. Newton, you think he's fantastic. We're in the same boat on that. Uh, unfortunately, he left my Panthers, and now he's up in New England, and I'm not so happy about that. Uh, so what what are you looking for out of Cam Newton and this Bill Belichick uh, relationship now? Well, I'm hoping that there's some sort of return to Super Cam. Yeah. I'm hoping that Cam uh, really dives into the details of football and you know, worries less about being a brand off the field and being a fashionista off the field (laughs) and just wants to go back to being an MVP caliber football player. If that's the case, I I love a motivated Cam Newton. When he is focused and motivated, he's a major problem on a football field. And so I love the pairing of he and Bill Belichick. I think it'll be great for Cam. I think that he has a chance to rehabilitate himself and make himself the highest priority free agent next offseason if he can stay healthy and if he will just 
give in. Look, I love the decision. He's not making a lot of money. This isn't an ego play for him. Every bit of this decision seems to me based on let me rehabilitate myself as a football player. And so I love it. You know, I'd love it even more if he cut his hair. But, you know, <laughs> that's just me being 53 years old. Fair enough. Well, we all have our cross to bear. Uh, yeah. Jason Whitlock, you can read all of his work at outkick.com. I appreciate your time, sir. Thanks so much for spending it with me. Hey, thank you for having me. Take appreciate care. Appreciate it. All right. Bye now. Yep. So tonight in Asheville, the city council is going to take up the issue of reparations for black residents, which, by the way, I'm not sure if you're aware of this. You probably are if you've been reading some uh, journalism that's uh, following the AP style book that apparently now the word black is capitalized. So when referring to people who are black, it is uh, the, the word black is to be capitalized. White is not, but black is. I don't know why. Anyway, um, this is how the Citizen Times piece by Joel Burgess starts off, quote, in a historic move, city council will take up the issue of reparations for black residents. Uh, this is one of the things I I repeat because it is important and it is everywhere. Speculative, predictive journalism. He starts right out of the gate with this in a historic move. Is it? Do you know it's historic? Will it be historic? Here's an idea. What if this resolution passes and nothing ever becomes of it? Nothing is ever done. It becomes like every other proclamation, resolution, you know, feel good symbolism uh, or a, a blue ribbon committee that does some sort of a big analysis and then they just put it in a nice binder and stick it on a shelf and nothing ever comes of it. Is that historic? I mean, if this is the definition of simply passing a resolution, then does that make every resolution historic? I guess in some sense, because there's a clerk of court that's keeping track of all of this stuff, right? It's going into the minutes. It's now in the paper. <laughs> so I guess that's historic to some degree, right? But this is narrative crafting. In a historic move, right? This is this is picking up the flag, picking up the standard, and you know, marching forward, progress. That's this is historic. Like he knows the the destination when this uh, the arc of history bends towards justice. Like Joel Burgess can see the promised land. He sees it. We need to go there. That's where it is. This is historic journalisming. That's why I call it that journalisming. He goes on to report, quote, if the resolution is passed, it would invite community groups and the Buncombe County government to create a task force. The Community Reparations Commission would help the city and potentially the county assign money and resources towards, quote, increasing minority home ownership and access to other affordable housing, increasing minority business ownership and career opportunities, strategies to grow equity and generational wealth, closing the gaps in health care, education, employment and pay, neighborhood safety and fairness within criminal justice. So, um, government, basically, that's what they're calling for. They're going to create a community reparations commission where the government appointees will recommend more government. That'll solve it. <laughs> That's the problem. We just haven't gotten enough government good and hard yet. We need more of it, more GovCo. That will make it all better. That will give us equality, right? It's not just going to be a check. 
right? Everyone thinks reparations. They think, oh, we're going to have, like, just GovCo's going to write a check and give it to people that way. No, 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 because that would indicate that you are an individual with the freedom to choose how to spend that money, right? And that's not really what GovCo's all about. Government would prefer that you uh, take advantage of their generosity and their charity with other people's money, uh, that, that you take advantage of these things in strictly prescribed ways. And they're going to make sure you do that by making everything contingent on your participation in various government programs. Now, they will say that this is all done because, you know, they need to make sure that the money is being spent well. But like this doesn't like honestly, if it's a moral issue, if reparations is a moral issue, then you don't have the right to withhold the money or put strings on it or anything else, right? You should just write the check, give it to people, and then you're done. And that's it. Conscience cleared. Slate is clear, right? History is now wiped clean. We are all even. You got the money. But see, they won't do that. Isn't this an interesting uh, window into the mindset of the Marxists and the the big government types, right? This is what it's about. It's not about actually, you know, giving people money and letting them build that wealth for themselves. It's about hooking them into more government programs. Because if you had the ability to, like, here's your check for a million dollars, Buncombe County black person, here you go, a million dollars. What do you think that person's going to go do with it? Maybe buy buy some property, right? Open up a business, Right? That would create generational wealth. But that's not what's being offered here. No, no. See, because we don't trust you, I guess. I guess that's what they're saying, right? They don't trust you. They don't want you to have that kind of money. Also, I think some folks might uh, might get mad about that. Don't you think? Someone who's paying taxes, barely scraping by, and then their tax dollars get used to pay for somebody else's you know, windfall. I think that might be... <laughs> politically unattractive for some elected officials. The city has taken steps in the past, Joel Burgess writes, to reduce the effects of racism within its own institution, including a 2016 funding of a disparity study and the establishment of the Office of Equity and Inclusion, which I thought had solved all the racism in the city, but it hasn't. So, oh well. Protests over the death of George Floyd, and the general treatment of African-Americans spurred bigger actions in places across the country. The move in Asheville comes after activists pushed the council to take up reparations this month, which, by the way, this should tell you who really runs the local Democratic Party and, by extension, the Asheville City Council. The activist base. I have been saying this for years, and if they are not in control of your local city council in your town or city or county, be aware, because they are coming. Have you ever seen a photo of the Blue Ridge Mountains so stunning that you couldn't look away? Well, that was me when I first saw Stacy Redmond's work at RedRockPhotoNC.com. Stacy is from Western North Carolina, shooting landscapes for two decades after he realized life is short. You don't get time back. So do what you love. Don't regret not spending time with family or chasing your dream. His work is brilliant, striking, and easily affordable for any space. See for yourself at RedRockPhotoNC.com. Use promo code PETE for 20% off. That's redrockphotonc.com. 
Have you been trying to set up or improve your business's website? It can be overwhelming for any of us. I know it was for me. So let my friend Schaefer Smith at Schaefer Smith Design help you with logos, graphics, photos, and online stores, search engine optimization, website maintenance, and security. For professional services, corporate, small business, and entrepreneurs, Schaefer Smith Design. Make your site look professional and user-friendly for your customers and you so you can adapt quickly. SchaeferSmith.com. That's SchaeferSmith.com. The show is also made possible by Rowena Patton and her all-star powerhouse team. Current events have impacted us all in many different ways, and maybe you need to sell your house. But you're thinking, I don't want the traffic coming through my house right now. Well, Rowena Patton and her all-star powerhouse team, they've got investors ready to tour your home virtually and potentially make a cash offer, saving you the hassle and stress of buyers having to walk through your home. Start out with a video consult with Rowena Patton. She's the only agent I would call if I'm buying or selling a house. You should, too. Call her today. 333-4483, mountainhomehunt.com, and start packing. The show is also made possible by Old Grouch's Military Surplus. Are you ready for disaster? Do you need some advice? Are you looking for military surplus that's real? For more than three decades, the answer has been Old Grouch's Military Surplus in downtown Clyde. It's an old-school, traditional store with a mix of modern and vintage items. See my friend Tim. He'll hook you up. He gets new stuff all the time, American-made, because it's real military surplus. Camo, shirts, hats, dog tags, gear, Old Grouch's on Main Street, downtown Clyde, across the street from the anti-aircraft gun and at oldgrouch.com. So the Asheville City Council at its meeting tonight is going to take up uh, reparations. They've got a resolution on that. And uh, I've got the... uh, the resolution here, a lot of whereases, whereas, 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 and as Jason Whitlock was mentioning, there's a whole list of uh, ways that uh, African Americans have been victimized. Uh, just actually, it's over a page and it's a page and a half of all of the whereases. You know, disproportionately suffer, disproportionately limited, disproportionately forced. All of these whereases, and then the resolution is that they apologize and make amends for its participation in and sanctioning of the enslavement of black people. This is the city council of the city of Asheville also apologizes and make uh, and makes amends for its enforcement of segregation and its accompanying discriminatory practices. Uh, also, number three, apologizes and make amends for carrying out an urban renewal program that destroyed multiple successful black communities. Now, that one I do agree with, right? The, quote, urban renewal in the 70s, you know, enacted by Democrats uh, in all of these cities all over uh, America that just obliterated black neighborhoods and uh, successful businesses and such. Yeah. Um, Calls on other organizations and institutions in Asheville that have advanced and benefited from racial inequality to join the city in its apologies and invites them to address racism within their own structures and programs and to work with the city to more comprehensively address systemic racism. Calls on the North Carolina uh, General Assembly, the state, and the federal government to initiate policymaking and provide funding for reparations at the state and national levels. Directs the city manager to establish a process within the next year to develop short, medium, and long-term recommendations to specifically address the creation of generational wealth and to boost economic mobility and opportunity in the black community. This one is interesting to me. 
uh, to me. And I'm going to get it. This is what I'm going to get into with the systemic racism, but also uh, the the difference in um, in poverty levels. And what creates generational wealth? Is it government programs? Is it government programs alone? Let's say it that way. Because you could take advantage of some big fat, like if you're Solyndra, right? Take a whole bunch of money from the government with a, uh, via a program or grant, and, uh, and then you, you know, keep all the money, and then you use that to build generational wealth. It's one of the things, though, about generational wealth. If you have a generation or two of idiots, they can fritter away an entire fortune. It's possible. It, history is replete with stories like that. Let me finish this. Number seven, fully supports its equity department staff and its work, and it encourages the city manager to utilize their talents when forming policy and programs that will establish the creation of generational wealth and address reparations due in the black community, as mentioned above. And number eight, seeks to establish within the next year a new commission empowered to make short, medium, and long-term recommendations that will make significant progress towards repairing the damage caused by public and private systemic racism. Racism gets a capitalization there, too. I'm not sure why. Enslavement got it also. Enslavement got capitalized. Racism got capitalized. I'm not sure. I'm not sure why. I feel like I'm reading an unhinged twitter account at some points here uh other local government community organizations may also be invited to have representation on the commission the task of the community reparations commission is to issue a report in a timely manner of course for consideration by the city and other participating community groups for incorporation into their respective short and long-term priorities and plans accountability for achieving equity will be enforced in the appropriate offices the report and the resulting budgetary and programmatic priorities. Okay, so you get the idea here. That's the last one. And then they're like, hey, we, we want an update uh, from the manager. <laughs> After we do this, we would like an update from the manager, you know, regularly about how we're doing, uh, rooting out all the racism. Okay. All right. So that's the first thing they're going to do. They're also going to um, take up this matter of the Black Lives Matter mural on the street. Okay, Uh, there is um, in downtown Asheville, there's this sort of loop. It goes around the central Pack Square Park and uh, they're going to paint Black Lives Matter, you know, in the big street mural. You've seen these types of things all over the uh, the nation and in uh, where they like big yellow letters. I'm not sure if these are going to be yellow letters or if they're going to paint each letter as some, you know, work of art, like a mural inside each letter. I think Charlotte did that. so anyway, they've got this deal that's coming up on the uh, agenda uh, this evening, and uh, supposedly most of the money has been raised privately by the Asheville Area Arts Council. Um, they're almost to their goal. I'm not sure. It says here no city funds are needed to complete the project, but the city's going to waive fees because it is a city project. So it, it, whenever they do these things um, at the city of Asheville, it's always funny to me. They have like they have like these boilerplate types of language, these templates that they use whenever they introduce a, a, an agenda item or, or a, a resolution or they're going to pass a, an ordinance, they have to read this like paragraph explaining like why it checks off certain things. It's like a script that they, that they always read. Anyway, um, and much like that, their proposals that come from staff follow a similar type of boilerplate guideline here. And so they always break down 
pros and cons, uh, which is very helpful. So if you're a city council person elected to represent uh, all of the people of Asheville, because we don't have district elections here, so every member of council supposedly represents every citizen of Asheville. Um, But uh, if you don't have time to do your job, which a lot of them seem like they don't, um, then pros and cons comes in very uh, handy because you don't have to actually do any research on this. You can just read what staff tells you. So here are the pros and cons. Pro, contracting with this not-for-profit provides the city with ability to artistically express itself in matters of public concern, furthering Asheville's identity as a place built on creative culture and economies. Uh, It also, uh, the contract results in the hiring of 19 African-American artists, okay, who are going to get a couple hundred bucks a piece, I think, for each letter. So uh, those are the pros. Okay, pros. Cons. What do you think the cons of this project might be? Take a stab at that. Here's, they they found one. The city of Asheville staffers, they, they, they did see one potential downside. Some community members may not agree with the city's expression. Which, <laughs> that's a pretty large umbrella, <laughs> right, to fit under the, yeah, some people might not agree. I don't know, may, might there be some other things that might fall under that category? Uh, for example, um, what if I would like to have an art project installed? What if I would like to write something on the streets? Are you going to be able to reject my proposal or because this is a city project that uh, you think that's going to insulate the city from other requests, maybe some litigation to follow if anybody cares enough to do that, uh, which I doubt they will, not in this town, but um, that's the first thing. But more importantly, I think this is the most obvious one. It's the expression of the disagreement that you're going to have to deal with, which is what? People are going to vandalize it, right? There are going to be people who either go after this thing intentionally or you're going to have people that, uh, as we've seen in other uh, cities, I think it was in Charlotte also, where somebody drove through downtown and drove over the mural and everyone was like, I can't believe they drove on it. Like, it's a street, you know, and if you're going to paint over the street and people are going to drive on it, then it's going to get damaged. Like, that's what's going to happen. But of course, in our stupid society, now it's everything is going to be deemed uh, and Uh, an aggressive act of vandalism against the mural, which then is going to prompt, you know, more divisiveness. You're also going to have people who don't particularly agree with the Black Lives Matter uh, organization, the Marxists that run the organization, which is what it is. And I understand Black Lives Matter is a different thing to different people. There are any number of ways to interpret the sentence of three letters, right? For some people, it's simply just a, an expression of, of unity and belief and uh, support. And for others, though, the Black Lives Matter movement is Marxist because it is. OK, it is. It's it, that, that's the owners, uh, not the owners, the uh, founders uh, are self-described, self-proclaimed out and proud cultural Marxists. They will tell you that. That's the point. That's what they are using their organization for. And so there are some people who don't appreciate that. For example, New York City, where they painted this Black Lives Matter mural on Fifth Avenue right in front of the Trump Tower, which I'm sure had nothing to do with the the site selection for the mural. 
But some guy went out there with red paint and dumped a bunch of the red paint on the mural. Uh, here's the hills right up on it. Uh, in brief footage of the incident captured early Monday, the man, whose face was covered, can be seen dumping a can of red paint over part of the mural, days after it was completed. The man, who also doesn't appear to be wearing gloves, then sets the can down on the street and flees. What do you think that's about? The Hill is telling it, hey, we can get fingerprints off that can, everybody. Get the fingerprints. We need to find out who this guy was. However, by late afternoon, the relatively small part of the mural that had been vandalized had been repainted. <laughs> so, okay. I'm, I'm sure we will see none of that here in Asheville. Not at all. All right. So, uh, because what we know about Asheville is, of course, that nobody paints over anybody else's work in this town, particularly <laughs> with spray paint. That doesn't happen <laughs> in this area at all. By the way, one of the things that Jason Whitlock writes about in one of his columns uh, is about how the Black Lives Matter folks uh, say that there's a single path to racial evolution and enlightenment, and that is through submission to the Democratic Party. That's why the Democratic Party, the pro-slavery party, pro-Jim Crow party, anti-civil rights party, that's why they're not under attack from Black Lives Matter and Antifa, right? That's why they're not the target. All right. National Humanities Medal winning economist and scholar Dr. Thomas Sowell spoke with Mark Levin the other day, and he was asked about this question of systemic racism. And Mark Levin said, what does it mean? And whatever it means, is it true? And here's Dr. Thomas Sowell. It really has no meaning that can be specified and tested in the way that one tests hypotheses. Uh, it does remind me of the propaganda uh, tactics of Joseph Goebbels during the age of the Nazis, uh, in which he's supposed to have said that people will believe any lie if it's repeated long enough and loud enough. And that's what we're getting. I, I don't think it's one of many words that I don't think even the people who use it have any clear idea what they're saying. Uh, their, their purpose is served by having other people cave in. He also went on to talk about uh, one of the things that he came across, he said, when he was writing a previous book about the poverty rate and the, uh, the comparison and contrasting between blacks and whites. He says, Quote, if I remember my numbers correctly, something like 22% of blacks are in poverty, 11% of whites were in poverty. And like, oh, well, that shows racism, right? But he found that the poverty rate among black married couples was 7.5%. In other words, quote, black married couples not only have a lower poverty rate than blacks as a whole, they have a lower poverty rate than whites as a whole. As if there is some information that we might be able to glean from this. What do you think it is? What do you think it might be? Could it be that the people who sold certain populations in American history on, quote, progress were actually undermining their ability to do just that? Is it possible? What are the three things to stay out of poverty? Widely understood and accepted and uh, even the Brookings Institution says this is the case. The th what are the three things? Do you remember? Graduate high school, number one. Graduate high school. Number two, have a job. Any job. It doesn't matter. Have a job. Just a job. And number three, don't have kids before you get married 
and connected with this is that you don't get married before you graduate high school, right? So that's that's it. If you follow this plan, the chances are overwhelming that you will not be in poverty. And if you were in poverty, you will get out of it by doing those three things. Very simple. Very simple. I'm not saying it's always simple to follow all three of those things, right? If you're struggling in high school, trying to graduate, you've got all these other um, pressures and obstacles to getting a uh, getting a diploma. So, like, I understand that, but it's simple to understand these three ideas, these three concepts. Have a job, any job, graduate high school, and don't have kids before you get married. Because these are when societies first form and then grow and progress, they realize things that work and things that don't. And they discard, usually, the things that don't. And they keep the things that do. And that's why you end up with a history, with a cultural norm, right? You end up with these structures in place because the institution of marriage was deemed to be good. It was deemed to be beneficial. It helps more people than it hurts, Now, that's not to say that there isn't domestic violence, and I'm not saying people need to stay in a marriage if it's abusive. I'm not saying any of that. Just by the data, it simply is true that if you do these three things, you will, in all likelihood, not be in poverty. Or if you are in poverty and you follow these three rules, chances are you will get out of poverty. That's what the data shows. Is that the message that we're sending to people? Is that a message that permeates all cultures in America right now. Is it? I don't think so. I don't. I don't think that's the case. I don't think that these three things are celebrated. Okay, well, maybe the uh, the graduate high school part of it. That might be the one that gets the most promotion, you know, is uh, trying, you know, hey, we want everybody to graduate. That's true. Um, But this is an interesting comparison of Poverty rates. Let me jump ahead here. There's a piece by a guy named Rav Aurora. He's only 19 years old, this kid, but he's got a piece posted in the New York Post. It's an op-ed. It's pretty lengthy. It's called The Fallacy of White Privilege and How It's Corroding Society. And this kid grew up, he's a Sikh, and he grew up uh, you know, with a turban in a majority white environment of British Columbia, Canada. Uh, and he says he was a constant target of bullying throughout his elementary school years because he was a Sikh and he wore a turban and these Canadians, which I was under the impression that only America was racist, but apparently Canada is too, which then I don't understand. Like, well, how does that prime minister guy still have a job after he dressed in blackface all those times? Anyway, upon immigrating from India, when I was four, he said, my family suffered tremendous economic hardships and cultural challenges. He says his dad drove a taxi at night. His mom worked menial jobs as a cook and a house cleaner, a barista and a motel cleaner. Um, He says for uh, but more than a decade post-immigration, We have found our footing in Western society with my dad making nearly six figures operating his own software company. Rising from poverty to economic prosperity is a common narrative for immigrants from all backgrounds in the West. For example, after the communist takeover of Cuba, 1959, a lot of refugees flee to America, right? They leave everything behind. They come here. They start with nothing. And by 1990, in 30 years, Second-generation Cuban-Americans are twice as likely to earn an annual salary of $50,000 uh, 
uh, than non-Hispanic whites. Twice as likely to earn 50K than whites. How, how, is that hap- how does that happen in a racist society, right? When Cuban-American second generations are now earning more than the native white population. The notion of white privilege, he says, stems from the idea that whites uh, have benefited in American history relative to, quote, people of color. And it's true that the institution of slavery and the following decades of anti-black dehumanization has a continuing impact today. 2013 study from Brandeis uh, Brandeis University found that 32% of the wealth gap between whites and blacks can be attributed to inherited wealth and length of home ownership, two factors linked to institutional racism. Meanwhile, Harvard economist Roland Fryer's much-publicized study on racial bias in policing found cops are 53% more likely to use physical force on black civilians compared to whites. Because of facts like these, you have this emerging definition of white privilege is now that's being circulated on social media. And this is it. Quote, white privilege doesn't mean your life hasn't been hard. It just means your race isn't one of the things that make it harder. OK, so when you hear people say white privilege, this is what they're uh, referencing now. Some is OK. Some of it is going to be like overt directly, like you're only rich because you're white, something like that. Right. But this is sort of the more nuanced, more subtle, I would say more corrosive uh, uh, definition is that, okay, look, white privilege doesn't mean that you didn't have it tough growing up. I mean, there are a lot of you know poor white kids, right? So, uh, okay, th- so white privilege doesn't mean that you just, you know, you, that you're rich all the time. It just means that because you're white, you never had it harder because of your race. He then points out, one thing that undermines this theory, which is the Jews. Jews are white. They seem to suffer the most from hate crimes, according to FBI stats, right? So is that white privilege? Right? Their race hasn't helped them. But he says, notably, the growing demonization of whiteness now means that white people are no longer immune to racism. See, they're actually they're actually doing the very thing that they claim whites have not ever experienced. They're now doing it to whites, right? They're creating this this demonization based on skin pigmentation that first they claimed they were against, but now they claim whites don't understand, even though whites are now experiencing it, right? Here's one for you. Karen. What's a Karen? When people say, oh, Karen, I, I don't use this because it's... um. Because I, because I don't think it's fair to people who have the name Karen. I, they didn't do anything to deserve that. They, you know, these people just chose a name, they chose a word, and now they're twisting this word and making it something else. Kind of like the OK sign, right? But see, nobody sees anything wrong with lampooning and mocking, demonizing uh, the name Karen, and and specifically as applied to white women, right? That's what's going on here. A white woman can now be accused of being a Karen. If they don't behave in certain uh, expected and acceptable ways, he says, I can think of several instances where friends and colleagues have been racially targeted for being white and holding contrarian but intellectually defensible positions like we need to have a generous but reasonable limit on our immigration system. Like if you say that as a white person, you'll then be called a racist. Why? Because you're right. You're a white. Right. That's it. And he points out that he, as a as an Indian, as a Sikh, 
he gets to hold that position without anybody calling him a racist. Isn't that interesting? So he's got some bit of privilege there that a white person doesn't. I have been saying this from the beginning. Of course, there are privileges that people enjoy, and those privileges change you know, based on where you are. I mean, there are all sorts of things. For example, do you think a white person has privilege walking through a predominantly black neighborhood? Do you think that white person has privilege? Right? I don't know. I would not assume that they do. So, and and the inverse is true as well. He says the concept can't even explain why several historically marginalized groups outperform whites today. Look at Japanese Americans, for example. These are people who, up until 1952, they couldn't even own land. Okay, they could not buy property in like a dozen American states. They they were interned during World War II, but. By 1959, the income disparity between Japanese and white Americans had nearly vanished. By 59, Japanese Americans now outperform whites in income statistics, educational outcomes, and test scores, as well as incarceration rates lower than whites. You could also argue successful stories about, um, he says, his family, his Indian family, Cuban Americans, also Japanese Americans. These are all cherry-picked cases, maybe. But whites are far from being the most dominantly successful group in Western society. Did you know that? There's a ton of data collected from uh, Quillette analysis, and it shows uh, overwhelming white underachievement relative to several minority groups among health outcomes, educational achievements, incarceration rates, economic success. So, On the whole, he says, whatever systemic racism exists appears to be incredibly ineffectual, right? Or even non-existent, given the multitude of groups who's consistently eclipsing whites in these measures, right? If this is white privilege, they're not doing very good at it. (laughs) Um, Several minority groups outperform whites, substantially so. They are Pakistani Americans, Lebanese Americans, South African Americans, Filipino Sri Lankan, Iranian, Indians. Um, Actually, Indians have almost like double the household median income of whites. Interestingly, several black immigrant groups also outperform whites. Nigerians, Barbadians, Ghanaians, Trinidadians, and Tobagonian, Tobagonian, Tobagonians. Anyway, people from Tobago. Um, They got median household income well above the average American household income. They do better than uh, whites with ancestry from uh, that, that are Dutch, French, Polish, British, Russians, right? So do they have privilege? Nigerian Americans are one of the most educated groups in America. Did you know that? According to a Rice University survey, he says fundamentally privileges of all kinds exist. And he's exactly right. Able-bodiedness, wealth, education. Moral values. If you were privileged enough to grow up with two parents in a loving household, right, that was stable, non-abusive, uh, you know, middle class or even lower class, even without any wealth, but just a loving family, that's a privilege. That is a privilege. How about this one? Facial symmetry. Do you know that? That's a thing. If your face is a little off, like it's not perfectly symmetrical, it's um, it's unsettling subconsciously to other people, 
right? Tallness. People who are tall have privilege. Did you know that? Oh, of course they do, right? They tend to win more elections. They tend to get paid more. How about people who uh, are pretty and handsome, right? Attractive people tend to have privilege. They get to do more things. It's so funny to watch the way people react. And I've personally experienced this. Going from fat to thin, I have personally experienced the difference in the way people treat me. I would walk into a room, nobody would ever look at me. And then you walk, start walking into rooms and all of a sudden everybody turns and starts looking. It's real, okay? Health, stamina, safety, economic mobility, and importantly, living in a free, diverse society. These are all privileges. Rather than whiteness, an exponentially more predictive privilege in life is actually growing up with two parents. That's why 41% of kids born to single moms grow up in poverty, whereas only 8% of children living in married couple families are impoverished. Do you hear that? 41% of kids born to single moms are in poverty. 8% to married couples. Since 1994, the poverty rate among married black Americans has been consistently lower than the white poverty rate. If you are black and you live in a house with married parents, you are probably going to be wealthier than whites. That's since 94. None of these statistics discount racial prejudice or equal opportunity or, uh, or unequal opportunity for that matter. Um, they simply point to the glaring fallacies of the all-consuming white privilege narrative, which has now degraded our national discourse into identity politics and racial tribalism. White people are now one-dimensionally seen as an undifferentiated mass of privilege and wealth, whereas minorities are seen as powerless victims oppressed by a society ingrained with white supremacy and bigotry. Until we collectively repudiate race-based stereotyping, and uh, fallacious inflammatory generalizations, he says, quote, we shift the focus away from real inequality and discrimination and never truly make progress. Of course, I would submit maybe progress isn't actually the answer that the Marxists are looking for. That's a wrap for this episode. Please remember, subscribe to the podcast, give it a thumbs up in the reviews, and consider becoming a patron of the program. You'll get cool stuff, exclusive content, and links are at thepetecalendarshow.com, also in the description of this podcast. Thanks so much for your support. We'll talk to you later. Don't break anything while I'm gone.